How much do you love him? Are we learning to love him? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 16. We're going to look at the second half of verse 4. We're going to go all the way to verse 15. If you don't have your Bibles, of course, you've got two beautiful TV screens. Better than looking at TV at home, right? Amen. <clears throat> this point in this section... Jesus is telling his disciples he was leaving them. you got to understand something. This is hours before Jesus Christ is going to be crucified. Hours before. I don't know how many hours, but it was very, very close to him being crucified. And he's so concerned and so consumed with the love for his disciples that he's teaching them. And he was telling his disciples he was leaving them. That didn't go, very, that didn't go over very well with them. But he said the Holy Spirit would come and fill them with his presence. And even though they were going to face very hard times, like the last time I spoke, they were going to face hatred and persecution from the world. Even though they were going to face that, his presence will always be with them by his Spirit. So, instead of the hardships becoming... A difficulty to their faith. The hardships would actually strengthen their faith. When trouble comes, the disciples would remember that this is just what Jesus said would happen, and their strength would be, their faith would be strengthened. And also, when the Holy Spirit would come, He would fill them, and He would guide them into all truth. That's important. And they would be filled with his power. And the message they would bring to a lost world would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Not them, the Holy Spirit in them. And some, some would be saved and Christ would be glorified. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. There's no doubt about that. He's going to guide you into all truth. And now you have the ability to go into this lost world and give them the gospel that will convict the hearts of the people you're ministering to of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not you, the Holy Spirit in you. And some will be saved and Christ will be glorified. Let's look at John 16, second half of verse 4, all the way to verse 15. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send them to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. 
and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. And Father, let your word illuminate our hearts and minds through this text. Help us by your spirit to learn not only to think, but to act biblically. Allow your mind and heart to be ours, Lord Jesus, so we can be light in a dark world and glorify your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think the church today is very confused at times when it comes to the functions or role of the Holy Spirit. The triune God, especially the Holy Spirit. There's a pastor, his name is Steve Cole. He's a graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I think he says it well concerning the Holy Spiritual. Actually, he was quoting most of of this section I'm going to read to you, Dr. John MacArthur. I wasn't looking for anything of MacArthur, but I was looking, uh, as I was reading this, Dr. Uh, well, Pastor Steve Cole, and he happened to be quoting John MacArthur. And he says this, he says, since the Pentecostal movement began a little over 100 years ago, and I assume he's talking about Azusa Street, there's been a lot of emphasis in evangelical circles on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But there has also been a lot of confusion and error. Pastor John MacArthur wrote, It is a sad twist of irony that those who claim to be most focused on the Holy Spirit are in actuality the ones doing the most abuse, grieve, insult, misrepresent, quench, and dishonor him. How they do it? By attributing to him words he did not say, deeds he did not do, phenomena he did not produce, and experiences that have nothing to do with him. They, bo- they boldly plaster his name on that which is not his work. He goes on to cite many examples, which you can see on YouTube. Whole congregations doing the ho- Holy Ghost hokey pokey. People token the ghost, pretending to inhale the Holy Spirit and get high, as if he were an invisible reefer. And women writhing on the floor, miming the process of childbirth. Old-fashioned snake handlers look tame by comparison. He cites several Pentecostal preachers who say that the Holy Spirit told them to punch, kick, violently assault people in an attempt to heal them. An elderly woman died at a Benny Hinn miracle crusade when he pushed her over backwards. And I looked it up to make sure that I was not reading something. And sure enough, this really happened. Hinn's wife made such ludicrous, vulgar statements about the Holy Spirit that her antics were later mocked on Comedy Central's The Daily Show. Because of this widespread confusion about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is essential that we learn from our Lord as he teaches how the Holy Spirit will work in the disciples and by extension in the church after Christ's ascension into heaven. And I like what Pastor Brian prayed. We have nothing to offer. We have no experience to offer. We just have Christ and his word and heartfelt prayers. The Lord wants to give us an experience 
fine, but we are not going to produce it. And that's my prayer for us today, that we can learn and experience from this text how the Holy Spirit works in and through believers, in and through you and me. We, and I have to emphasize this, we cannot do anything without the Spirit's presence in our hearts. It's Him who works in and through our hearts and who convicts sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Without the Spirit of God we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire we are useless. And I agree with him. But we also know from God's word that the Spirit of God draws attention mainly to Jesus Christ, not himself. And here's the proposition I want to bring to you tonight in this text. The Holy Spirit works in and through us to convict sinners and glorify Christ. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit works in and through us to convict sinners and glorify Christ. Now as Pastor Brian has been wonderfully preaching through the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and his church. It really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? But it's called the Acts of the Apostles. I, I don't believe our text today is speaking about methods, methodology. But the Spirit's truth, convicting resurrection power, working through believers according to his word. You see, the Holy Spirit gave us his words. He's never going to contradict his word. He's always going to work in accordance with the word he gave us. And there's three points I want to bring to you tonight. We're going to only look at two because the third one, uh, well, two because of time. And the third one we will look at the next time I speak. First one is the Holy Spirit's presence in us. Each and every person has a Holy Each and every person that's a believer, that is, has a ho- the Holy Spirit's presence in them. Second point is the Holy Spirit's presence convicts the world. And the third point we'll look at the next time, the Holy Spirit's presence guides us into truth. Point one, the Holy Spirit's presence in us. Let's look at the second half of verse four to verse seven again. Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send them to you. The last time I spoke, we looked at John 15, verse 17 through 16, the first half of verse 4. The world's hatred of Christ and his church. We looked at that in two parts. If you weren't sleeping, and you re- you'll remember that. <laughs> Jesus was telling them, when he departed, hatred, persecution, that Jesus Christ himself experienced, which peaked at the crucifixion, was now going to fall on them. He was leaving, now the, per- the, the hatred and the persecution was now going to fall on his dis- disciples, and by extension to all believers. Jesus didn't tell his disciples these things beforehand, that is the hatred and persecution they would encounter because Jesus really took the brunt of it. But now they were going to experience it because he was leaving them. But he wasn't 
going to leave them alone. And that's the good news. That's the good news. Today's text, Jesus is encouraging the disciples that even though he was leaving them, the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's going to fill their hearts, take away their sorrow, and convict the world of sin through them. I like what Dr. Leon Morris says. He says, from the thought of persecution his followers must face, Jesus turned to the resources available to them. He will send them the Spirit who will supply their need abundantly. We have already had the thought of the Spirit as the helper and advocate in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Now we have the additional thought that he is the prosecutor, convicting sinful people of being in the wrong. You see, we've got to be careful, but when he, when, he says, when he talks about prosecutor here, you see a prosecutor prosecutes, and then they get convicted, and then they're sent away to prison or the death penalty, whatever is the case, to pay for what they've done. Now the prosecutor, the Holy Spirit, deems us guilty, but then points us to Christ. He points us away from, from the, the condemnation we should experience, and he points us to the, that's right, he points us to the living Savior, Jesus Christ, who freed us from that condemnation. So Jesus is telling disciples, I'm going back to my father, the one who sent me here. Yet none of you asked me, where are you going? Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, there seems to be a blatant contradiction here. Because when Jesus spoke of his departure earlier, both Peter and Thomas, back in chapter 13, I think it's verse 36, where Peter said, where are you going, Lord? And then in chapter 14, verse 5, Uh, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? They did ask that very question. But there's no contradiction. One solution is, Jesus is speaking to them in the present tense. None of you ask me right now where I am going. Another solution, which I think is more probable, and I lean toward this one, is although the disciples previously asked Jesus about his departure, his death, they didn't understand its meaning. In other words, they didn't previously ask the question of where he was going with the right meaning or the right motive. They were concerned about themselves. In other words, oh my, what's going to happen to us, Jesus? They were not interested in the purpose of why Jesus was departing. They were concerned with, they weren't concerned with Jesus' destination. They weren't concerned with Christ's death, his glorification, and the Spirit's arrival, which, by the way, was for their advantage. They were only interested in Jesus is leaving us, and we're going to face hard times without our master. Maybe Jesus was saying, maybe, just maybe, Jesus was saying, none of you are asking me where I am going with the correct understanding. Maybe. That was spiritually dull. Nonetheless, because Jesus just said to them, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send them to you. They were spiritually dull. Now, I don't want to be too hard on them because we who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us have no excuse why we sometimes are spiritually dull. Would you agree to that? Sometimes we act like Jesus is not present with us by his spirit. Sometimes we think, oh, only if Jesus would appear and walk with me through this hardship, 
We'd love to have the physical Jesus here with us. The physical Jesus is not here with us. But he's here in his spirit. His spirit will never leave you. His spirit will never forsake you. Do you believe that? If you don't, that's probably the reason you have little assurance or little joy. Or when you go through hardships, we tend to focus on the hardship that is causing us the pain, right? Whatever that looks like. And forgetting the bigger picture, like our greatest sanctification, that the Holy Spirit is working out in our lives. You see, the apostles could not see at that point. Not, not, they eventually got it at the day of Pentecost. But at that point, they could not see the bigger picture. All they could see is, woe is me, Jesus is leaving, and I'm here. we're going to be here all alone to face the brunt of this persecution. And that's why sorrow filled their hearts. But as Matthew Henry said, Christ had said enough to fill them with joy. John 15.11 tells us that. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see, Jesus' death was not the end of everything. It was the beginning. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit's presence in the believer's life for numerous reasons. One of the reasons was for you and me, not only the apostles, so we would not be sorrowful. When Jesus departed, sorrow filled their hearts. It was a temporary sorrow and would be replaced with joy on Easter Sunday. Now, I don't believe God wants any of his children to have long-term excessive sorrow. There are some Christians that, are, that have long-term excessive sorrow. Day after day, night after night. And I don't believe that's God's will for any Christian. Yes, we're going to experience sorrow at times. We all do. But not long-term. Psalm 30, the second half of verse 5 David said, weeping may tarry for a night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. But another reason for Christ's departure and sending the Holy Spirit was for our advantage. If Jesus didn't go away, obviously there would be no atonement for our sins. We needed that, right? We need to be forgiven. But also, if he didn't go away, the helper would not come to them. But because he left, the Holy Spirit was sent to them and gave them. He gave them eternal life. He indwelt them. He instructed them. He empowered them in their witness. And he gave them all the promises of God. So Jesus had to die, resurrect, ascend to heaven first before the Holy Spirit would come. At that moment, the disciples could not grasp that. They just could not understand that. They were spiritually dull. Exactly what Jesus said would happen, happened on the day of Pentecost. And the Father gave them and every believer since then the Holy Spirit. And then they understood. If we really grasp this understanding that Jesus, his Holy Spirit is with us, we would jump for joy. Once again, we have this desire. and It's not biblical. It's not what Jesus said. We think if only... I could have been with Jesus when he walked the earth. My Christian life would be so much better. I could ask him questions, watch him do miracles. He would heal me of all my distresses, diseases. He would help me. I'd never have problems. 
But if we grasp this text right now and believe it, guess what? We would understand that we have it better than the disciples had it before Pentecost. Did you know that? That you have it better than the disciples had it before Pentecost? Jesus was physically, temporarily living, walking with them, but he was outside of them. When he left and went back to the Father, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them. I always say this, you know, Enoch walked with God, but now God is walking in and through us. If we understood it, we'd have joy unspeakable and filled with glory. We would do what Dr. Ossie Sproul did when he first understood this text. Listen to what he says. He says he literally began to dance in the street and jump over fire hydrants. You know why? Because like most of us, he was like Abraham, living in the Old Testament, looking forward for Christ's coming, or wishing he could be alive during Jesus' earthly ministry. But it's far better. I want you to get this. It's far better that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is in position of power and authority. He's our high priest, continually interceding for us, and he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. If you think that it's better if Jesus walks with you physically, you better think again. The Holy Spirit's presence in us. Point one. Point two, the Holy Spirit's presence convicts the world. Another work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world. Let's read verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. See, the Holy Spirit convicts people. Doesn't convict dogs. Doesn't convict plants, trees. He convicts people. He might convict fish so they jump onto my hook. He might do that. I'm not. What? But he convicts people. And some will heed that conviction. Some will heed that conviction. Some will repent and believe. And some will reject the conviction. And continue in their unbelief. The word convict comes from a particular Greek word. Which means to expose. To convict. To reprove. And sometimes it's used in a judicial sense. Like I said before. As a prosecutor. But we got to be careful the way we use it as a prosecuting attorney. uh, That the Holy Spirit is. Because he leads us to Christ. He doesn't lead us to jail. You know. Uh, The Holy Spirit will convict everyone of sin. The only one who could never be convicted of sin was who? Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus demanded in John 8.46, Which of you convicts me of sin? Many of the Jews rebuked Jesus. Many of the Jews convicted him of sin in Matthew 9, John 9. But no one brought sin home to his conscience. But for all humanity... Or I should say the rest of humanity, the Spirit convicts us, and rightly so, because we're sinners. The Holy Spirit's primarily function in conviction, he convicts the world of three things. Verse 9, the Spirit convicts the world of sin. 
Now the word sin, and we need to get this, the word sin is singular, and a particular sin is in view here, which is not believing in Jesus as Messiah. The Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. Why? Because they do not believe in Jesus. If any of you were at the adult Bible study class, you may remember one of the things we spoke about in 52 stories of the Bible by Dr. Bill Mounts was repentance. And we spoke about this actually a couple of times. And Dr. Mount made a point of when a person initially repents, when he or she puts their trust in Christ, it is not primarily a repentance of any particular sin, although that will eventually happen, but the sin of wrong belief about Jesus. There are many who do not believe who Jesus is. Many will say, and I, I, you listen, I've been a Christian many years, and you, you hear it all the time. Many people say, I believe in Jesus, but if you dig a little further, you will find they are believing in a different Jesus, whether it is the Jesus of Islam, Jehovah Witness, the Jesus of Mormonism, a Jesus of the New Age, or maybe an historic Jesus. But they are not believing in the Jesus of Holy Scripture. We went to dinner I told this story once before, but it bears repeating to bring home this point. Uh, My wife and I went to dinner a few years back with some Christians and got into a conversation about a particular TV evangelist. And this TV evangelist said that Jesus, one of the things uh, that this particular evangelist said was that Jesus didn't finish the atonement on the cross but finished it when he went to hell for three days and three nights, which is absolutely ludicrous because every scripture points to the blood atonement from the cross. Nothing about Jesus going to hell and continuing the atonement there and letting the the demons torment Jesus. That is a false teaching that is actually crept into the church and you need to be careful about that the atonement was completed on the cross and, and time will not allow me to prove, it, prove this from scripture and, and my wife and I supported this ministry but I had a tough time understanding why the couple who are Christians would defend this ministry anyway when I heard, when I heard that when I understood this whole thing about the atonement, I sent a letter to the ministry and asked them if they really believe that, since I only heard it from someone, I wanted to hear it from them before I withdrew our support. And they were kind enough to answer me back. However, the answers really skirted the issue. They really not didn't get into the nitty gritty of what I was asking, and it was not to my satisfaction, so we immediately withdrew our support. And one of the one of the things I've asked them in the letter was, was Jesus divine when he walked the earth? Was he God? And they didn't answer that question either. And later on, I heard in my own two ears that this particular TV evangelist said this about Jesus' divinity. Now I know for sure. And they said this. When Jesus said, I commend my spirit into your hands... And I quote, he ceased to be God. The word of faith teachers are notorious at denying Jesus Christ's divinity. When you deny Christ's divinity, guess what? You don't have the biblical view of Jesus. 
And that needs to be repented of. The Bible gives us a wonderful example of someone who had a wrong view of Jesus and repented of it. The two thieves on the cross. That Jesus was crucified with. He was between them. They both, the Gospels say they both mocked Jesus. Matthew 7, 27-45 tells us the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way as the chief priests with the scribes and the elders as they reviled him. But as hours wore on, one of the robbers on the cross, his conscience was convicted. And listen to Luke 23, verses 39-43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Well, listen to this. But the other rebuked him. Now, remember, previously, he was mocking Jesus too. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, by the way, that's another reason why we, don't, we know that Jesus didn't go to hell to suffer. Today you will be with me in paradise. God opened his heart on the cross, being crucified. I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking about the thief. Opened his heart on the cross. And he repented of his mocking and his wrong view of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, even on the cross, graciously affirms his salvation. That's a wow for me. I don't know about you. The Holy Spirit's conviction of sin is an act of amazing grace. His conviction is actually loving kindness that leads sinful men to repentance. And now they begin to have a correct view of who Jesus is. Dr. Carson says, This convicting work of the paraclete is therefore gracious. It is designed to bring men and women of the world to recognize their need and so turn to Jesus and thus stop being the world. That's fantastic. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not only to believers, but to the unbelieving world as well. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And when you and I were unbelievers, it was the ministry of the Holy Spirit that exposed the sin in our hearts, convicted us, and graciously led us to repentance and faith in Christ, wasn't it? No one gets saved apart from the convicting and regenerating work of the Spirit. No one. Why? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. We were darkened in our understanding, excluding from the life of God because of the hardness of our hearts, blinded by Satan, so we could not understand spiritual truth. Unless the Holy Spirit penetrates our hearts, hard hearts, And breaks the power of sin. Not one person will ever come to faith in Christ. Not one person. The Holy Spirit is the only one. Who can convict the lost world. It's not the Christian. The Spirit of God. Uses the Christian. To convict the sinful world. Through the proclamation of the glorious gospel. But ultimately. Beyond the shadow of a doubt. It is the Holy Spirit. Who convicts men's sinful heart. 
Peter, filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, after he preached to the crowds, uh, the crowd responded with these words in Acts 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were, what, cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That was the Holy Spirit that brought such deep conviction to the crowd that it cut them to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? We're in turmoil. We're we're, we're guilty before God. They were cut to the heart. Who did that? Was it it Peter? No. The Holy Spirit. It wasn't Peter's persuasive argument or his eloquent speech. No, it was the Holy Spirit. This is what Dr. Kent Hughes says. He said, if Peter had preached, listen, if Peter had preached the day before, nobody would have believed. Are you disappointed when you share Christ with someone and they don't accept Him? Do you think to yourself, if I only said this, or if I only use this scripture, I think they would have come to Jesus and be saved. Do you ever think that? Do you really think it's your persuasiveness or your clever articulation of the gospel that leads sinners to Christ? And I'm not saying we shouldn't articulate or try to be persuasive. There's a point being made here. It's not you. If we think that way, it's proud and arrogant thinking. When we think along these lines, we diminish the great understanding of the sovereignty of Almighty God. Our role is this. Preach the word. Preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit will do the convicting. You know, I I, I learned this as an... In my earlier days of Christianity, if someone could talk, if I could talk someone into salvation, guess what? Someone can talk you out of it. But when the Holy Spirit does a work in a person's heart, then I'll never change. Never change. You can preach with the most excellent, persuasive preaching, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't open the heart, no one will get saved. Anytime we speak God's word, the Holy Spirit convicts. But unless he opens the heart that conviction will be rejected. Secondly, he convicts the world of righteousness. Verse 10. This, of course, is speaking about Christ's righteousness, not the world's, because their righteousness is what? Hypocrisy. It's a filthy rag. Well, I'm going to use that scripture. Our righteousness, apart from Christ, is what Isaiah called in chapter 64, a filthy rag. You know what filthy rag means in the Hebrew? Well, I, I don't want to really get graphic here, but it's a woman's monthly, you know, little, you know, okay. I don't have to say any more. That's what God thinks of our righteousness apart from Him. Ouch. The world has a very confused view of what true righteousness is. They may think that a person is righteous because of some good good they may do. The world thinks as long as you don't hurt anybody, put a few coins in the offering, help a poor person, don't take drugs, don't get drunk, you're a righteous person. What they do is they compare themselves to the murderer, to the drug addict, to the criminal. But when a person compares themselves to a perfectly, holy, perfectly righteous God, 
They fall on their feet and they say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, as Peter cried. When the world sees Christ's righteousness, it magnifies their sin. And they realize they cannot attain salvation by their own efforts. That's what happened to me. I'm sure that's what happened to many of you. The Holy Spirit shows the sinner that they could never attain righteousness, which they need. But righteousness before God is attained by Christ's atoning work on the cross, not the sinner's efforts. One commentator said, It is Christ's personal righteousness which the Spirit was to bring home to the sinner's heart. Well, how and why do we see his righteousness? Because Jesus went to the Father. The death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ vindicated him, Jesus, as the righteous one of God. That Jesus went to the Father proved his righteousness because the Father would not accept unrighteousness in his presence. And I think the world sees Jesus' righteousness through the believer, through us. Not our righteousness, lest we should boast, but Christ's infinite righteousness purchased for us on the cross. So when Christ died on the cross, guess what happened? He took our sin, but guess what else happened? He clothed us with his righteousness. It's called the doctrine of imputation. If you took the systematic theology class, you remember this. Doctrine of imputation. Our sins were imputed to Christ, and his righteousness was imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Could you imagine Jesus dying on a cross and all of a sudden our sin is imputed to him and God the Father pours his full cup of wrath on him. But then it didn't end there. And then he takes his righteousness and clothes us. It's by grace alone, it's by Christ alone, it's to the glory of God alone. One of the things most of us love to do is eat, right? We love to eat. We hardly finish with breakfast and we're already thinking of what we're going to have for lunch. And then lunch comes and we're thinking about what we're going to eat for dinner. And during dinner, we're thinking about our dessert. And during dessert, we're thinking about the snack while we're watching TV. And during our snack, we're back to eat breakfast. In other words, we are passionate people about our food. We hunger and thirst for food and drink. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's hunger and thirst for his righteousness before we hunger and thirst for food and drink. We need to be passionate about Christ's righteousness that He credited us with. And I think when Christ died and took our sins and clothed us with his righteousness, we now hunger and thirst for that righteousness to be more and more manifested in our lives. And the lost world will then see his righteousness flowing through us by his spirit and the world will be convicted of true righteousness, of Christ's righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and thirdly, of judgment. Because... Satan is already judged. This is not speaking about future judgment of Satan, his demons, and all who don't belong to Christ. Satan and his entourage of followers will stand before the 
the judgment of God in the future. But here, this is speaking of Satan's total defeat at the cross. Satan thought he had Jesus, didn't he? He thought he judged and condemned him. And he was defeated when he nailed him to the cross. But that wasn't Satan's defeat. I should say that wasn't our Lord's defeat. That was Satan's defeat. That cross actually defeated Satan. And it reminded me of a story in Esther. When Haman wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. So he he hated Mordecai, Esther's uncle. So he built a gallow to hang Mordecai on. But when the, the king found out through Esther his plan... And how evil and demonic it was. The king had Haman hung on the gallow that he built for Mordecai. Christ's cross was for Satan's defeat. Not Christ's defeat. John 12.31 Now was the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Colossians 2.13-15 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with them having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands Listen now This he set aside nailing it to the cross and here's the key He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him Satan's defeat, not Christ's. The movie, The Passion of the Christ. I don't know how many of you saw that. I'm not a big fan of these movies. But, you know, we we look at a movie like that, we weep and think, oh, poor Jesus. Right? No, we should say, no, defeated Satan. If we're going to weep, we should start by weeping over our miserable, sinful condition. We should weep for the lost world. And then we should rejoice... That Satan's power has been broken. Hebrews tells us that through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He stands judged and condemned. We give too much credit for Satan to Satan. The world's judgments are unrighteous and evil, which was demonstrated perfectly when it nailed Jesus to the cross. Christ and God's judgment are true. And perfect. Everything, every judgment they've made was true and perfect. And all who are in Christ are delivered from the judgment of God. Satan and all his followers stand judged and are awaiting the final great white throne judgment. But for Christ's followers, their judgment has been satisfied by the death of Christ. That satisfies my heart. I don't know about you. That brings peace to my heart. I don't know about you. Because I know... Outside of that, I stand judged and condemned. I remember one time, Brian and I and a few others, we went to um, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. And that was the, the year when Harold Camping was predicting that Jesus was coming back and the world was going to end. I think he predicted May 21st and then October 21st when May 21st was he predicted the rapture of the church and then October 21st he predicted the end of the world and there was billboards all over the place and we went to the conference 
And we were taking our lunch break in the park. And who pulls up? Pastor John Davis on his holly. Remember that? He pulls up. And we're talking. We're conversing. We have a great time. We're eating our lunch. It was a beautiful day. And some guy comes walking along with his pamphlets. That he was a follower of Harold Camping. Judgment is coming. And he hands the wrong person the pamphlet, John Davis. <laughs> Without batting an eyelid, Pastor John Davis said, My judgment has been taken care of at the cross. As believers, our judgment was taken care of. Unbelievers are judged because their father, the devil, has been judged at the cross. Now listen, there's only two possibilities of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is to reject it and remain condemned as John 3.18 tells us and to face eternal destruction or to repent and trust Christ and spend eternity with God and have inexpressible joy. That's the fantastic work of the Holy Spirit. Let me conclude here. Christ accomplished really so much for us on the cross and it's a shame we don't understand the implications of it. It's a shame when we live as if the Spirit's presence in us that was purchased for us at the cross is somewhere out there. Is, you know, the Spirit is somewhere out there. No, the Spirit is in you. Yes, the Spirit is everywhere. But the Spirit dwells in your heart. Sometimes we act as though there's no presence of God's Spirit dwelling in us. And I pray that this message encouraged and changed you today. To know that He dwells in you. If you're a believer in Christ, He dwells in you. And my prayer is that you live life to the fullest because you now know He lives in you. And every time you're tempted, and every time I'm tempted to be sorrowful, or every time we feel alone, and God is nowhere to be found, that you will say, no, He lives in my heart. Also, we need to understand the Holy Spirit is actively and presently deeply convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. How's he doing that? Through his church, through you and me, and all believers. That's how he's doing it. And today, right now, you can walk out of here, you can, with the strongest confidence, not in your power or strength, but in the Spirit's power and strength, to go and proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world, and watch the deep conviction of the Spirit at work in them. I love when that happens. When little old John Verdi goes and preaches to someone and someone is deeply convicted and comes to faith in Christ. Or even if someone rejects Christ, I know the Spirit is working. Some will reject that conviction, remember. And some will repent and trust Christ, which will glorify Him. You know what we need to do? Here's what we need to do. We need to ask our Heavenly Father not to give us His Spirit, you know why? Because we have it. We're born again. We were baptized into the body by the Holy Spirit, Paul told the Corinthian church. And now we have the power to be his witnesses. But we need a desire to be filled with the Spirit. So we have a keen awareness and consciousness of the powerful presence of the Spirit in our lives. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And need the fullness of the Spirit to remind us and help us experience his power in our lives again. We used to sing this song. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. How many of you remember that song? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. 
Melt me. Mold me. Fill me. Use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. In 1878, Edward Hatch wrote this hymn about the need of God's spirit in our lives. Listen to the first verse. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love the way you love and do what you would do. The Holy Spirit's presence is us. The Holy Spirit's presence convict the world. And the next time I speak, we will conclude with point three. The Holy Spirit's presence guides us into truth. As I end this message and we get ready for the Lord's Supper, um, let's reflect on the biblical fact that we have the Spirit's presence in our lives forever, thanks to Jesus' death, which is represented in the elements which we are going to receive. So if we can get ready, the ushers can get ready. And as Marty leads us in song, let's think about the fact that because of Jesus' death, we now have the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ to a lost and watch the Spirit through us convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment.